Like I said, I'm going to give my story this morning. Stories are important. I hold in my in my hand a book of stories all the way through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. It all started with Adam. Did you men ever stop to think what it would have been like to have been Adam? Adam had a wife and never had a mother-in-law. That's quite a story. Adam had a story, and Noah and Abraham had stories. Moses and Joshua and Isaac, David had stories. Daniel and Shadrach, Elijah, Samson, Jonah all had stories. Nehemiah and Stephen and John and Zacchaeus and Peter and Paul. There's a whole chapter in the book of Hebrews we often refer to as a faith chapter. And in that chapter, there's one man after the other listed, one right after the other listed in that chapter because of their great faith stories. But did you know that right in the middle of all these men, there's a woman named in that chapter by the name of Rahab. You know what Rahab was? Rahab was a prostitute. Rahab was a harlot. And yet there comes a day in her life when she too puts her faith and her trust in God. And God thinks so much of her faith that he puts her in the faith chapter. I'm speaking to someone now. And you feel like you've lost it. That you've ruined your life. That you, you've destroyed it. And you could never have a testimony. But I have good news for you today. Two things. Number one, you're in this building today. And you're breathing oxygen. That means you're alive. And then number two. My God is a God of a second chance. And sometimes a third chance. And sometimes a fourth and even more, as some of us can testify. When you go to the cemetery, you see a headstone. There's enough information that we know something about the person that is buried in that particular spot. We know their name, of course. And then maybe there's something about their family. Maybe a a favorite Bible verse, maybe something about their military career. But then there's always the dates. There's the date that the person was born, and then there's the date that the person died. But more important, in between the two dates is the little dash. And it's what's on your dash that matters the most. What happened? From the time that you took your first breath to the moment that you took your last breath, that's your story. Look at Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 7. And there was war in heaven. And Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. And neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out. That old serpent called the devil and Satan which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down which accused them before our God day and night. Now the question is, how would they overcome this accuser? 
the one that verse 9 refers to as the great dragon, that old serpent, the devil and Satan. And an even more pertinent question this morning is how will you and I overcome this accuser on September the 10th, 2023? How will we overcome? Two ways. And the very next verse tells us. Are you ready for it? Here it is, verse number 11. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony. What's your story? What's your testimony today? I was raised in a pastor's home. My, my dad was a Baptist pastor for almost 60 years. He lacked a few months being six full decades of pastoring and preaching God's word. you imagine that? Almost six decades faithfully. My dad was one of the hardest working men I've ever known in my life. Before he became a full-time pastor, he was a bivocational pastor. He would get up early in the morning, drive a school bus. He would come home and change clothes. He'd put on roofing clothes. He'd go out and roof houses, come back in the afternoon, change into his bus driving clothes and drive a bus, come back and visit people in the evening time, go to the hospital, make hospital calls and study and, and preach on Wednesday night and Sunday morning and Sunday night. And he did that for years and years and years, never complained. My mom passed away four years ago, dad nine years ago, so my, my mom was a pastor's wife for almost 60 years. And one of the godliest women ever known in my life, my mom was one of the hardest working, she didn't weigh 120 pounds soaking wet. She was mowing her yard with a push mower when she was 91 years old. I'm not talking about the kind you push the handle down and it takes off. I'm talking about a push mower. 91 years old, she called me one day and she said, Tim, I sold my car. I was shocked because she drove herself everywhere. I said, Mom, why did you sell your car for? She said, well, I'm 91. I've never had an accident. I've never had a ticket. And I want to go out on top. <laughs> I couldn't say that when I was 17 years old. There were five of us kids and my older sister, me and my three younger brothers and we didn't, we, we lived, we were poor. We didn't know we were poor. Our house maybe might have had a thousand square foot total and had one bathroom. You imagine seven people on Sunday morning getting ready to go to church. You got one bathroom. And, um, but, but it, was, it wasn't a perfect home by any stretch of the imagination, but it was a great home. But do you know what you do when you're raised in a pastor's home? You go to church. You go to church all the time, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, revival, Bible conference, vacation, Bible school. When the doors were open, I did. I told a group, group of kids the other day I was on drugs. Whenever I was nine years old, mom and dad drug us to church Sunday morning. They drug us back Sunday night. When the doors were open, we went to church. You want to know something, parents? It didn't hurt us one bit. The Bible says, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added. You. Let me tell you something, parents. The reason we're so messed up in our country today, we're putting God second, we're putting God third, we're putting God fourth. We're not putting God first. Connie and I, were most of the time, my wife travels with me the majority of the time. She's been sick this last week, so she stayed uh, in Dallas. But uh, we go down to the hotel uh, lobby on Sunday morning to get us a bite to eat before we go to church, and there's ball teams. There's ball teams everywhere going out to play ball on Sunday morning. When I went to school, when I was, I know that's an ancient time, but when I went to school, they didn't have ball on Wednesday night. There was nothing planned from the school on Wednesday night. You want to know why? They knew it was prayer meeting night. 
And they respected that. There's no respect for the church today in America. And, and today they play ball. They don't even wait till Sunday afternoon. They start playing ball on Sunday morning. Seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things should be added unto you. There's a lot of young adult parents in this room today. I want to give you a word this morning from the book of Deuteronomy chapter number 6. This is for the young adult parents. You've got young children. Hear this in Deuteronomy 6 and verse number 5. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And thou shalt, are you listening to this, young adult parents? Here it is. And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children. And shalt talk of them when thou settest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. What are you talking about? The word of God. When are you talking about it? When you sit down, when you rise up. When you go by the way, and who are you talking about it to? To your own children. As important it is for your children to be in Sunday school or a small group or an Awana program or even a Christian academy. All that's great and all that's wonderful. But listen, parents, it's not their primary responsibility to teach your children the Word of God. It is your responsibility to teach your children the Word of God. And that's the kind of home that we raise in. I was taught a lot of great stuff at church, but we were taught at home as well. When I was only 10, 10 years of age, North City Baptist Church, North City, Illinois, sitting on the second row on the right-hand side, for the first time that I could remember, I got under conviction that morning. Now, the best that I can explain conviction to you in a short period of time is when God himself comes to you personally and begins to speak to you personally about big stuff like life and death and heaven and hell and eternity. And when conviction comes to you personally, especially like a setting we're in right now, if conviction comes to you while I'm speaking, you will probably be the most miserable person in this room. You would like for the preacher just to shut up. No more singing. Somebody help me. Get me out of here. But friend, if conviction was to come to you today, you know what you ought to do? You ought to thank God for it. You know what it means? It means God loves you. It means this one true and holy God is trying to draw you unto himself. He wants to have a personal relationship with you. He wants you to spend all of eternity with him in this beautiful, beautiful place called heaven. And on a Sunday morning, 10-year-old boy, conviction came. I was, I was all shook up. My dad was saved. My mom was saved. My sister was a Christian. But I'd never been saved that morning. All I'm, I, I, when the invitation started, I was really in bad shape. All, all I could see was hell. Somebody said, well, you shouldn't get saved just to stay out of hell. Well, maybe not, but that's not a bad reason to get saved. And I left my seat that morning, and I knelt at that altar, and my mom came and put her arm around me. That morning, as a 10-year-old boy, I repented of my sins, received Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and I got born into the family of God. And I'm here to tell you people that is the greatest thing that has ever happened in my life. And if you've been saved, that is the greatest thing that has ever happened in your life. I've got to be up front with you today. If you've never been saved, if your life has never, ever been changed by the power of God, 
then your life is incomplete. You might be the you might be the richest person in this building. You may have more money than all the rest of us put together. But if you don't know Jesus, your life is incomplete. You may be the smartest person in this building. You may be the most educated person in this room. But if you don't know Jesus, then your life is incomplete. You may be the strongest man in this county. You may be the most beautiful woman in this county. But if you don't know Jesus, then your life is incomplete today. You need Jesus. I was excited. I told family and friends what had happened in my life. But then, when I became a teenager, something else happened in my life. It never happened overnight, but rather gradually, I started to put things before God. Football, and basketball, and baseball, and track and field, these things soon became my gods. And my dad told me, more than one time, Tim, there's nothing wrong with you playing ball unless you put it before God. Now, I didn't want to listen to that. And little by little, I started putting these things before the Lord. And when I did, I started to have trouble. I started to have problems in my life. I started to rebel. I rebelled at school. I rebelled against God. I rebelled against mom and dad. I said, Tim, what did your parents do when you rebelled? They had never read any of Dr. Spock's books on child psychology. They didn't know who the dude was. He actually believed that if a child was frustrated, that whatever it would take to get the frustration out, let him do it. If he wanted to pick up a rock and throw it through the window, if that would help him get his frustration out, let him throw the rock through the window. Well, my dad had other ways of getting that frustration out. We lived on a farm for a while, and behind the farmhouse was a willow tree. Now, I don't know whether you know what willow trees are good for or not, but you don't get any fruit off of them. They're not even a good shade tree. The only thing they're good for is to get a switch off of them. The only praying I did back in those days was for that tree to die. It never did die. Oftentimes, I'd have to go out and get my own switch. And I, I knew what was going to happen before I even got back, and, and they'd always talk to us. They, they'd say something like this before they spanked us, and they'd say something like this. they say, now, now Tim, this is going to hurt me a whole lot worse than it's going to hurt you. And I thought, isn't that dumb? If you give me that switch, I'll show you who it's going to hurt the worst. I said many times, even before I joined the Marines, that I served under the stars and the stripes. My dad furnished the stripes, I saw the stars. <laughs> they believed in old-fashioned discipline. But many, many times I would slip out behind their back to do what I wanted to do. I attended public school. Most of my friends were not saved. Most of their parents were not Christians. And I made up my mind as a teenager that I could live my own life. My junior year in high school, I set records in the long jump and the hurdles winning ribbons and trophies and medals, but all the time getting further and further away from God. You say, Tim, what did God do? God declares in Revelation chapter 3, in verse number 19, God said, as many as I love. Now listen to that. Listen to that. Listen to these words one more time. God is saying these words in Revelation three nineteen. Listen to what he says. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Five of my high school friends were killed in car wrecks, 
Every time I would see one of them in a casket, I knew that it very easily could have been me. And God would speak to me, but I wouldn't listen. I kept running. I kept rebelling. I graduated high school. I started college in the day, working nights. In the meantime, my life became one disaster after the other. And I didn't think it could get any worse. But it wasn't long till I got fired from my job. I got kicked out of college. Nowhere to go, nothing to do. And again, my life, a total mess. I was walking down the street in my hometown, McLeansboro, Illinois. I went by, a po- by the post office and I-, I noticed a sign. I had seen this sign on several other occasions, but it never got my attention like it did that day. It was a picture of a, of a young man in a sharp-looking uniform. At the top of the sign, it said the Marines are looking for a few good men. I was so full of myself, so arrogant, so egotistical, I went in and told the recruiters that I found what they were looking for. (laughs) Now, young people, to be real frank with you, I was tired of living at home. I wanted a change. I wanted something different. I was tired of being told what time to go to bed and what time to get out of bed and how to get my hair cut and what I could do and could not do. So I joined the Marine Corps. It wasn't the smartest thing I ever did. They put me on a Greyhound bus, sent me to Paris Island, South Carolina. I got off that bus and stepped out of those yellow footprints and I met the guy they called drill instructor. And I was there less than 24 hours when I decided I didn't like him and he didn't like me. But you know the real reason why I didn't like him? He was in authority. And I didn't like authority. I was rebellious toward all authority. But I was soon to discover that no matter where I would ever go in this life, there would always be authority with God being the supreme. In all authority. I laid awake nights, many nights, platoon 305, thinking about my life, the shame and the disgrace that I brought to my dad's ministry, to my own family. My attitude began to change in boot camp. They had some things to help it change. <laughs> I graduated from boot camp with a meritorious promotion. Went to ITR, went to engineering school, graduated with another meritorious promotion. And there I received my orders that I was to go to South Vietnam. I had three weeks leave. I went home to Southern Illinois and spent those three weeks, mom and dad. On Sunday, before I was to leave on Monday, I went to church with them. And in the service that morning, I, I thought, I sincerely thought, I had made things right with God. On Monday, mom and dad drove me to St. Louis and I got on that plane and it no more got off the runway. I pretty much told God I couldn't do it. These, these men are Marines. I was afraid they'd laugh at me. I was afraid they'd make fun of me. Went to Vietnam. was there for nine months. And I didn't go back to doing a lot of the things that I'd done before. But listen to me today. If you're not for the Lord, then you're against him. For the believer in this room today, for the Christian listening to my voice this morning, there is no middle ground. Today you're either helping the cause of Christ or you're hurting the cause of Christ. I had opportunity after opportunity to live for God. My, my mom sent me a Bible. 
And she wrote a lot of great things personally up in the front of the Bible to me, making some notes. And then she closed with this. She said, Tim, this Bible can keep you from sin or sin can keep you from this Bible. I put it in the bottom of my footlocker. I had no prayer life. I had no testimony. There was a black Marine in my squad by the name of Lee Gore. Corporal Lee Gore and I flew to Vietnam on the same plane. We were the best of friends. He was a Christian living for God. I was saved, but I was running from God. Many times I watched as he sat down to Ezra's rack and read his Bible, openly witnessed and prayed and talked to other Marines about the Lord. And I knew this was the story. I knew this was the life. I knew this was the testimony that I was supposed to have. But I wouldn't do it. 30 days left in Nam, and my top sergeant offered me a desk job. A desk job was coveted. It meant you didn't have to go back out to the field, to the bush anymore, and that's where the primary danger was. But for some reason, I told him I'd rather spend the rest of my time with my own men. I was told to take them on a minesweep. I had been on numerous minesweeps. The only thing particularly different about this one's but some of my men were fairly new in Vietnam. Some have only been there a few weeks and a couple just there a few days. So remembering how it was when I went on my first minesweep, I got my men together early that morning, March the 8th, 1971. I told them that I would walk point that day. Point man being the first man in the squad, 15, 20 meters, another Marine, 15, 20 meters, and another Marine. And we'd be staggered out in that kind of formation. Normally, I would have been in the back of the squad with the radarman and the corpsman, the lieutenant. Not trying to be a hero or anything like that, simply showing my men, especially the new men, about walking point. Our jobs locate landmines. Rounds had not yet been detonated and to clear the area of those devices. We walked that morning without any trouble. We found a couple of rounds. We detonated them. We stopped at noon hour to eat. While I was eating, my friend... Lee Gore asked me if I wanted him to take over his point. Lee was as, as well-trained as I. He could have very easily have done it, but for some reason, I told him I would finish the day, and then the next day he would walk point. So we picked up where we left off from. And 45 minutes later, I stepped on a 60-pound mine. It blew me several feet into the air. It ripped both of my legs off of my body. I should have been killed instantly. It was a big enough mine to destroy a jeep. We had entered a major minefield at the very exact moment that I stepped on a mine. A South Korean Marine that was serving with us stepped on a mine, lost one of his legs. Our bulldozer driver set his blade down on a mine. And now there's noise and, and smoke and chaos and confusion, and I'm in extreme pain. I was only unconscious for just a few moments. I knew I'd been hit, but I didn't, know, I didn't know how bad it was. I looked up in the midst of all this that was going on around me. Some of my men think we're taking on small enemy fire. My head's laying in the lap of my best friend, Lee Gore. Lee's not cussing the president or the communists or the Vietnamese or no one else, but rather a tear streaming down his face. Out loud, openly, he's praying and asking God to help me. I'll never forget it. As 
long as I live, remember it as low, it happened five, five minutes ago, I looked up that day and I prayed. It was, it was a simple prayer, something like these words. I don't remember the exact words, but something like this, God, if you'll let me live. I didn't want to die. I wanted to live. God, if you'll let me live, I'll do with my life what you want me to do. But I've made God so many promises on so many other occasions, but I never meant it like I meant it that day. They came with a medevac chopper, carried me to the hospital ship, the USS Sanctuary. Second day I was on that ship. Two naval doctors gave up hope. Infection had set in, run a high degree temperature, a lot of extreme complications. Dr. Robert Bailey was one of those two doctors. He and I were reunited in Garland, Texas years ago, and he told a thousand people that night that they didn't think that I would live because of the seriousness of my wounds. But God had a plan for my life. I lay on the hospital ship for two weeks, unconscious most of the time. They took me to the island of Guam to the Naval Hospital where I spent the next two weeks unconscious most of that time. I weighed 187 pounds before I was hit. The island of Guam, I weighed a little less than 80 pounds. During that first four-week period, mom and dad received visits from the Marines, the Red Cross, numerous telegrams, and from all that they had been told, they never expected to see their older son alive again. But God had a plan for my life. Earl Lewis came to hear me speak in Dayton, Ohio. Earl was the fifth man back on the minesweep that day. He'd only been in country for six weeks. He told Connie and I that it looked like someone had taken a five-gallon bucket of red paint and just poured it all over me. He said, not a one of my men thought that I would live. But God had a plan for my life in that crusade. The last night I preached on the great white throne, judgment seat of God, and Earl was the first person out of his seat, and I had the privilege that night to lead him to the Lord myself. Brother Lynn baptized him, and for all these years, a faithful member of that church. Ray Birchie came to hear me in Danville, Virginia. Ray was the radio man on the minesweep. He told my family was with me in Danville that day that when they put me on the medevac chopper to go to the hospital ship, that none of my men thought I would be alive by the time we reached the ship, which was only a 20-minute flight. But God had a plan for my life. Four years ago, Ray came to hear me again in Warren, Ohio, and in the second service, he was the first to come. Gave his heart to Christ. God saved him. They brought me back to the States, to the Philadelphia Naval Hospital, where I spent the next eight months, eight long months, surgery after surgery after surgery. When the surgeries were over, when the doctors were through, I had three inches remaining on my right leg, 11 inches on my left, but no other part of my body was hurt. And some people would tell us today that it was nothing more than an accident, but I remind you that with God, there are no accidents. God was not asleep on March the 8th, 1971. You see, as a 10-year-old boy, I said yes to Jesus. But as a teenager, I decided that I could live my own life. And I made a choice, a deliberate choice to run. And I ran and ran and ran. Until March the 8th, 1971, when the running was over. I went 
home from the hospital to my dad's church in southern Illinois. I went forward. I was the prodigal son come home. And I went forward publicly and asked the church to forgive me, and they did. And that church is where I met Connie. We fell in love with each other and were soon married. Recently celebrated 51 years of marriage. God's given us three wonderful children and seven awesome grandchildren. We have a brand new one, little Jack. He's a month and a half. He's adopted by our youngest daughter, Amber, and her husband, Jonathan. Jonathan's uh, uncle and aunt was in the first service this morning. And um, seven grandchildren. And then... um, it was about a year after Connie and I were married that God called me to preach. Can you imagine that? A Marine in a wheelchair, no legs. And God's called me to preach. Friends and even some relatives tried to discourage me. They said, be so hard, so difficult. But I said, if that's what God wants me to do, that's what I'll do. I pastored for five years. And now in my 45th year as an evangelist, I've had the privilege to speak in every state, many, many foreign countries preaching God's word. And I'll tell you today, like I've said so many times, the past 52 plus years of my life have absolutely been the happiest years of my life. You say, well, Tim, you're in a wheelchair. Your legs are gone. Today I'm in a wheelchair, but today I'm in the will of God. And that, my friend, makes all the difference in the world. Here's how the book of Job says that in chapter 5 and verse 17. Happy is the man whom God correcteth. Wow. Tim, are you telling us that God would do something like that to a person? God doesn't necessarily do things to us. He does things for us. Because he loves us. Because he cares for us. Because we are his children. Hey, you're saved today but you're out of the will of God, then I plead with you. I beg you, don't leave the doors of this building today until you get it right with God. And there may be several listening to my voice right now, and you've never been saved. I mean, your life has never, ever been changed by the power of God. I'm not talking about being a Baptist, a Methodist, a Lutheran, Church of Christ, Assembly of God, Catholic, Mormon, I'm not talking about being baptized. I'm not talking about living a good, clean, moral life. I'm talking about being born again. I'm talking about being saved. I'm talking about your life being changed by the power of God. You've been so good to speak to this morning, so attentive. Haven't been any interruptions except for a couple that had to go out and come back. Now I'm going to ask that no one leave unless it's an emergency cause because I'm getting ready right now to say the most important words that I will say here today. So don't let anything interrupt. Allow the Holy Spirit to speak in the next few moments. Are you ready? Here it is, the most important words I will have said here today. Here we go. A little over 2,000 years ago, God sent his only son to this earth. God didn't have 20 sons. God didn't have two sons. God had one begotten son, Jesus Christ. He came to this earth born of a virgin. And he lived here on this earth for nearly 33 sinless, spotless years. He did no wrong. And then one day, 
He walks up Calvary's hill willingly, lays down his life for your sins and for my sins and for the sins of the whole world. He hangs on an old rugged cross suspended between heaven and earth. And on that cross, he sheds his blood. And on that cross, he dies. God's only son died. took him off of that cross and they carried him and they put him in a borrowed tomb and folks right here is what separates among other things is what separates Christianity from every single religion on the face of the earth for if you were to go to the place where they put the body of Jesus you wouldn't find him he's not there on the third day he got up from the grave victorious over sin victorious over death victorious over hell and today God's son is alive hey that's the good news here's the great news he wants to come and live in your life you say Tim how how does that happen how does God's son come and live in my life where you come to this place and I'm not necessarily talking about the geographical location of Bible Baptist Church here in Simpsonville, South Carolina I'm talking about this moment I'm talking about this time this place in your life right now to understand in the sight of this holy God that you're a sinner the Bible says so the Bible says every single one of us has sinned and come short of God's glory. I'm a sinner. Pastor sin, we've all sinned. Every one of us. And it's our sin that separates us from God. It's our sin that keeps us from having a right relationship with God. And it is our sin that would separate us from God for all of eternity in this horrible, horrible place called hell. Except for the fact that a price was paid for our sins. God's only son paid that price on that old rugged cross. And today, if you're willing to repent of your sin, if you're willing to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus, the very moment that you by faith say yes to Jesus, what are you saying yes to? To the cross to the blood that was shed, to the death that was died, and to an empty tomb, to a risen Savior. The very moment that you by faith say yes, you become God's child for eternity. Hey, wouldn't you like to know that when you die, that you would spend eternity in this awesome place called heaven forever and ever and ever. He said, but Tim, I'm not planning on dying anytime soon, and I don't imagine any of us are planning. You may live to be 100, and you may not live to see the sun go down today. You have no assurance. And I tell people all the time, you don't have to go to heaven and you don't have to go to hell. But you can't stay here. Amen. You're going to spend eternity in heaven or in hell.
And it all depends upon what you do with Jesus. Today can be the greatest day of your whole life. Would you bow?